Welcome, this is Bill Munhausen, your host for Keo's Ark's podcast. My niche is faith and religion, but that doesn't tell you the whole story because God wants us to be salt and light in every aspect of life. We'll explore government and entertainment and family and entrepreneurship and science, all through the filter of what God would want as he builds his kingdom among us. I'm embarking on a new uh, series of the Keo's Ark's podcast, and um, I've been thinking about how to kick it off and what I ought to say in preparation for it. Um, The code name for it is What Makes Sense. When I started the podcast, and this was way back before the pandemic, back in 2019, I had a group of friends, and we all talked about things that were important to us and issues of the world, and it was kind of philosophical. At that time, the name of the podcast was Christian Ideas and Activism. And a little later on, when my friends disbanded and they went their own way and I started doing it on my own, I thought, well, that's a pretty pretty pretentious kind of a title. I should make it simpler. Uh, we were about to go and uh, kick off our own radio station, uh, which was called Key Radio, still is called Key Radio. And I thought, maybe I should just give it a simple name like the Key Ozarks podcast. And that's been the operating name for the last year or so, and um, I found that I got into a place where I was most interested in what is true, not not just kind of babbling about things, although at the moment I seem to be babbling just a little bit, and uh, in talking with uh, someone about this and, and how to have an identity for the show, uh, the suggestion came up that we should just call it what makes sense, because really a lot of what I'm talking about is very simple truths that we should all be able to agree about. So I think I am migrating the title of this from Key Ozark's podcast, which is really just the name of a, of a place, not a topic, that the new working title is going to be called What Makes Sense. With all that said, I was thinking about how to get started. I've I've come to a place where I really believe not so much in a particular theology or doctrine or intellectual way of looking at things, but a very pragmatic way. And I was looking at some of my old documents that I've written in the past, and actually way back a few years ago, I had a radio show And it was just a minute long. It was uh, during the time when I was running a Christian worldview center. And we were looking at everything in terms of what the Bible says and all the science topics like cosmology and geology and biology and anthropology and all those ologies, all the things that human beings study, and trying to identify the truth in each of those areas. And we did that by showing what scientists actually observe or what people actually observe, the observation, the real thing of science, and what the evolutionary or naturalistic theory was, and then what the creation intelligent design theory was. And the idea was to let people in the museum look at those different ideas and come to their own conclusions. And that worked okay for a science center, but it doesn't work so well for a podcast or a radio show. So I'm going to kind of settle in on the truth of things. 
What we were doing back then is we decided to expand out into the radio community by doing these little one-minute messages that came to be known as Expo Minutes. And so I'm going to read through an Expo Minute and then kind of expand about it, because understandably you can't cover everything in 60 seconds. Uh, it was quite a challenge to make a 60-second message for the radio. Nevertheless, they were well-received because they were kind of planting ideas in people's minds without uh, forcing them to believe any one thing. So, here we go. We're going to start with a series of Expo Minutes. And typically, what I did is I made a, an Expo Minute about each of these topic areas, like biology, cosmology, geology, biology, and all of those different topics. So I'll play an Expo clip, and uh, right after the clip, I'll have a little commentary time about each one. I'm Pastor Jerry Odell from Heartland Worship Center for Creation Expo. How should we interpret the Bible? Well, my suggestion is not to interpret, but to set our hearts to understand. 2 Peter 1.20 reads, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. When we read other books, we intuitively expect that the author is trying to communicate clearly. Our job as a reader is to comprehend the author's message based on their words. We expect the author means exactly what is written. Why then do we interpret the Bible? It's mostly a history of God's interaction with the Hebrews, and facts are facts. The question is what believers ought to believe. It seems to me we interpret Scripture because we aren't satisfied with God's plain meaning with the words He chose to use. We don't want to say the Bible is wrong, so we decide for ourselves what God really means to make it easier for us to swallow. On the surface of it, it might seem like I'm just telling people uh, to believe the Bible because uh, the Bible is the basis of religion and we just have to have faith, kind of turn off your brain idea. But that's not at all what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at in this uh, little one-minute post is that the Bible is a book of history. And if we read any other book of history, we wouldn't just reject it offhand, we'd examine it to see how true the history is. Uh, what's unique about the Bible is it begins with the creation of the universe, what modern cosmologists would call the Big Bang. And then it traces the earliest men and what happened to them, and how God eventually selected the people of Israel to be his people. And then it allows the people of Israel to record their history all the way up to the time of the Roman Empire. So it's a very unique archaeological artifact. I'd call it an artifact more than a religious book because it's an ancient writing written pretty much in the first person by eyewitnesses from the beginning of everything all the way to modern times at the time of the Roman Empire. The problem with it, the reason that there's so much objection to the Bible is we live in pretty much a Christian culture, and intellectuals always want to challenge what is the establishment or the accepted order of things. So a couple of hundred years ago, uh, intellectuals in the name of, um, I guess, science, naturalism, decided that they didn't like the idea that there was some kind of a creator God and this whole potentially supernatural aspect to humanity. So they became champions of skepticism. One of my favorites in that was a man named Charles Lyell. He was one of the earliest geologists, some would say the father of geology. 
He was an attorney by trade, but he uh, kind of fancied himself an expert on geology and rocks and stuff. And his famous um, evidence at that time was the Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls in New York, an area where I grew up, so I'm familiar with the falls. Uh, Lyell's claim was that the falls, he could prove that the falls was 35,000 years old, and since the Bible is only about 6,000 years of history, the Bible must be false. And he inspired a whole generation of scientists, geologists, to also challenge the biblical framework. The problem is most of those early skeptics and the evidences they presented have been pretty much disproven in the last 200 years. In the case of Lyell's Niagara Falls claim, no modern geologist thinks Niagara Falls is 35,000 years old. Nevertheless, Lyell's claims had these tremendous impacts on all the skeptics of the world. And if you take very smart people and create a big army of them and all look for ways to prove something false, they can do a pretty good job of it. And they can inspire the public conscience, the ordinary people like you and me, to go along with their foolish idea, even after their foolish ideas have been disproven. So what I'm saying with this little one minute clip is not just to believe the Bible because it's religious, I'm asking you to suspend your skepticism and read the Bible as it was written. It was not written with a lot of theological mumbo-jumbo. It was just written as a simple history of things that took place. And not all the things that took place were pretty. Uh, there was a lot of bad stuff going on uh, and a lot of good things going on. There were the lives of real people. It's great storytelling. Again, that's one of the things that leads people to believe in evolution or naturalism, is it's great storytelling. We get to talk about um, that first animal that crawled up on the beach and changed from being a fish to being an amphibian, and eventually a reptile, and eventually a dinosaur. And aren't dinosaurs cool? We have all of these um, interesting anecdotal, what some would call evidences, but they're just stories. And when you plow through all the science of evolution and naturalism and the Big Bang and all of it, it is just storytelling. Uh, there are points of evidence, but there are also lots of points of confusion and rejection, even among mainstream naturalistic evolutionary scientists. So why not read the Bible as an artifact, as a piece of archaeology, and try to figure out how it fits into the real world. Uh, one of my favorite evidences about the truth of the Bible is very simple. Bible has history about six to 10,000 years long. If you look at all the histories of the world, every written history everywhere on the planet, nothing is older than that. If human beings in their present form had been around for hundreds of thousands of years or even tens of thousands of years, they would have left some written evidence if they were just like us. But the actual evidence is that humanity, like us, with our kinds of skills, has only been around a few thousand years. And the best explanation of that lack of evidence is that human beings like us have just been around for a few thousand years. And let the chips fall where they may, 
that's the evidence from science, the evidence of observation, that, that there isn't millions of years of history out there and we, they just didn't bother writing it down. So let's go on to the next clip. This is Bill Munhausen for Creation Expo. Genesis 121 reads, And God created every living thing that moves after their kind, and God saw that it was good. We're told about a dozen times in Genesis that living things reproduce after their own kind. Although there may be controversy regarding what constitutes a kind, it seems likely that kinds are not the same as species. Biologists recognize that dogs, wolves, and coyotes all developed from an original canine ancestor, which is probably an example of the biblical kind. This means the sheer number of animals the creator had to bioengineer is much less than the number of species. He didn't have to create millions of varieties. I've always thought it curious that evolutionists believe one animal smoothly transitioned into another, whereas biologists recognize the distinct classifications of separate animal kinds. An unbiased observer would wonder about that. Evolution and science don't agree. I was watching a Facebook video a few days ago, and in that video, a whale had washed up on shore, and a group of people rescued the whale. They <clears throat> all teamed together to uh, roll him over and get him out into the water again and make sure he could uh, swim away before he died. Now, what evolutionary theory or storytelling tells us is that sometime in the past, a creature washed up on shore, and it began to evolve into a land animal. Now, according to the theory of evolution, that was probably some form of fish, something with gills that really couldn't live on shore. Perhaps it was a type of a mammal, like a whale, that washed up on shore. But the evidence of, not just science, but the evidence of everyday observation, when fish wash up on shore, they don't evolve into something. Even when a whale, a mammal, a seagoing mammal washes up on shore, it doesn't have time to ev evolve into something that can survive on shore. Unless it's rescued by somebody, it dies. And that's the truth of what we see in biology everywhere. There is no real mechanism for one kind of an animal to change into a completely different kind of an animal. Years ago, there was a theory by a scientist that came to be known as the hopeful monster hypothesis. The idea was that an animal could have some kind of a massive genetic mutation that could result in a completely new life form. And that all that had to happen then is for that mutation to be passed on to a future generation. Kind of reminds me of the X-Men movie series. X-Men is a lot of fun to watch. We see people who can uh, blast stuff with the power of their vision. We have other people who can um, alter matter just with their mind. Uh, I think there's a character that can change the weather just by thinking about it. And all of that is compelling, fun storytelling. We can have lots of adventures and great battles between these different kinds of powers. But none of that is true. It's just storytelling. It's the movies, people. So that sort of thing doesn't happen in the real world. It's never been observed to happen. There's no evidence that it can happen. And that traits like uh, that kind of super brain can be passed on to some future generation unless you also have a mate that has the same mutation to, to be able to pass it on. So again, the evi evidence 
goes against the uh, popular modern theory of evolution. Here's another one. You've heard about the Grand Canyon, of course, but do you know the Grand Staircase? Geologists refer to the southwestern United States from the Grand Canyon across Arizona and New Mexico to California as the Grand Staircase. A mile of sedimentary rock has been scoured for thousands of square miles from this area, and geologists have no idea where it went. If the sediments were redeposited into the Pacific, we would have a 51st state off the coast of California. An event like the flood described in Genesis would account for it. The best explanation for the Grand Staircase is that floodwaters, covering an area the size of the North American continent, washed away those sediments and dispersed them throughout the Pacific Basin. Secular geologists prefer not to think about flood events that cover continents, so they remain perplexed. This clip illustrates one of the great, um, what I will call, blind spots of science. Scientists are unable to examine one-time events like a potential worldwide flood. The flood that's described in Genesis is also described in the histories of many cultures around the world, not just the Bible, the, not just the um, culture of the ancient Israelites. Scientists look at that and they say, well, we have no way to look at a one-time event. We can't reproduce it. We weren't there to observe it. I mentioned Charles Lyell earlier. What Lyell inspired his, the early ge geologists to do is look for any explanation other than the biblical flood to explain uh, things that they observed. So when they looked at the Grand Canyon, they said, no problem. The Colorado River runs into the Grand Canyon. Must be over millions of years the Colorado River formed the Grand Canyon just by eroding its banks. The uh, Grand Staircase completely blows that out of the water because there's no way something like the Colorado River could have sc scoured the entire southwest region of the United States. Nevertheless, scientists are stuck with this problem. They can only look at what they can observe. They also have a bias against written history as being a reliable kind of evidence. Even though it is an artifact of people living at that time recording what they actually saw. Here's a clip about government. The 5,000-year leap was one author's attempt to summarize the principles that allow mankind to enjoy liberty. These principles enabled Americans to enjoy more progress than anything experienced in the preceding 5,000 years. I'll use principle number one as an example. The only basis for sound government is natural law. Cicero wrote a century before Jesus that true law is right reason in agreement with nature. I like to think of natural law as the normally expected consequences of an action. For example, stealing is undesirable because it damages trust and commerce between people. The principles of liberty defy political correctness, so they quickly become controversial. One of those principles states that the government of a free people cannot be contained without true religion. Religious beliefs are a unifying factor in a nation that honors its beliefs, not so in one that forces faith out of the public arena. If one of the characteristics of our time is how far we've drifted away from this concept of natural law. Natural law meaning what makes sense. Um, I think if there is something universally believed, kind of a bipartisan belief, is that government is no longer fair. 
government differentiates between classes of people. Even our tax code, we, we tax supposed wealthy people at a higher rate than poor people. And that sort of makes sense. I do understand it in some way. But you have to understand that if you are taxing everybody the same rate, the wealthy people would automatically pay more, give more to government. But the other thing to keep in mind is our system is based on people striving to make a living, striving to excel, striving to do more. And we have this contest, kind of like any kind of a contest. And then at the end of the contest, government swoops in and says, well, no, we're going to cut the winners down, we're going to raise the losers up, and we're going to make it seem more equitable. But there's nothing equitable about taking a perfectly fair competition and changing the results, so to speak. Years ago, politicians tried to solve the problem of racism by um, introducing a bias. It was called um, affirmative action. Under affirmative action, minority people, supposedly people who either had been um, discriminated against in the past or maybe even their ancestors were discriminated in the past, they were given an advantage. They were given preference in terms of hiring, preference in terms of getting into universities and colleges. And the idea was to make up for an injustice of the past. Unfortunately, you really can't make up for an injustice of the past by doing something in the present because you've just created a new kind of injustice. And over the years, that idea of affirmative action has kind of gradually gone away, mostly because people realize that um, there is pretty much equal opportunity in the world and that affirmative action just isn't necessary anymore. It's not that we shouldn't strive to resolve issues like racism, but those issues really are personal. They're not governmental. They're not something that you can solve by making laws or forcing people to do the right thing. Uh, people can be educated to do right. They can be urged to be godly, to understand the Bible, and to be moral and just people. But they can't be forced to be moral and just people. It just doesn't work that way. Nevertheless, if you are a person who doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in some higher standard for humanity, then your only choice is to use some kind of power to coerce people to be better. You, you just don't recognize any other way. And that is one of the real key problems we have in America now, this, this religious divide between Christians or believers and non-believers or atheists, is that there is such a fundamental different way that we approach the issues of humanity and they're not reconcilable fundamental differences they are fundamental differences here's a clip about the nature of love here's how one evolutionary materialist defined love romantic love is a biochemical reaction to pheromones and other stimuli that persists for a limited time the object of romantic love has been placed in our path by chance and its only goal is the instinctive perpetuation of our genetic material the process suspends our ability to reason but the effect is temporary and has no eternal meaning falling out of love happens when our biochemistry changes it sounds very scientific but who can live with that kind of worldview that unromantic 
basic idea of love. In day-to-day life, most atheists reject their worldview and live as if love is more than just mechanics. The question is what believers ought to believe. Just as God loved us when we were still sinners, a believer's love for a husband or wife transcends materialism. We are spiritual. We're called to love like God loves, sacrificially and without end. One of the key thoughts in that clip is that most atheists can't live with their worldview. When it comes down to personal relationships, they have to believe that there is something that transcends the purely mechanical, naturalistic, chemical attraction issues that, um, that uh, most scientists would say are true. Uh, we have to believe that love is something more than just a physical reaction, that there's something spiritual and eternal in it. And people live, tend to live that way regardless of their philosophies. It would be so much simpler if people just accepted what they feel at the gut level rather than trying to analyze everything. Because what we feel at the gut level is that mankind is something special, something more than a highly evolved animal, but a being that has not just a physical body, but also a soul, some kind of a spiritual connection with God that transcends being just a living, breathing being. We'll finish up with this quick clip about dinosaurs to follow up with something kind of a little bit more fun. Many people don't know that the Bible speaks about dinosaurs, even though we use the names from those biblical descriptions. Consider behemoth, a term commonly used for really big things. We read in the book of Job's chapter 40, Behold behemoth which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox, his strength is in his loins, and his power in the muscles of his belly. His tail is like a cedar, and the sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, and his limbs like bars of iron. He lies in the covert of the reeds and marsh. If the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. No one can take him with hooks or pierce his nose with a snare. I can imagine that passage describing an Apatosaurus or Brachiosaurus or Diplodocus, any of the large plant-eating dinosaurs who occasionally supported their weight in shallow lakes and rivers. If you really want to annoy a paleontologist, Bring up the connection between dragons and dinosaurs, or dinosaurs and dragons. The connection is so obvious, but they really hate it because, according to evolutionary theory, dinosaurs lived millions and millions of years ago, and dragons seem to have been around uh, Europe and China and all the different nations of the world uh, during the same time as people. And uh, one of the tenets of evolution is dinosaurs and people didn't live at the same time, but dragons and people certainly seem to. Even someone like Marco Polo uh, reported during his travels seeing um, these great animals that some people would say must have been dinosaurs or dragons. And of course, um, Far East is, is famous for its depictions of dragons and great creatures that look very dinosaur-like. So we have now here in the Bible, this idea of behemoth, and in, in a very close by uh, passage, a talk about a seagoing animal called Leviathan. And both of those defy any comparison to any living animal that we see today. Uh, apparently, behemoth was some kind of a dinosaur-like creature, whatever he was. And he was, according to God, 
created on the same day as Adam and Eve. So humans and those kinds of animals, behemoths, certainly lived at the same time, and they were not hippopotamuses or elephants or alligators or anything like that, because we know people make uh, shoes and handbags out of alligators, so apparently behemoth was something much bigger. All right, that is enough for today. I'll try to pick up this next week with another series of little Expo Minutes. Thanks for joining us today. Until next time, go out and do good. 